Hi Citywide, it's Sermon Time. Um, I'm coming to you from Marawar, which is pretty much the end of the whole earth, end of the world, northwest Tasmania. I was thinking it'd be nice to film outdoors, but it's not one of those 10 days a year where the wind is not here, so it's blowing a gale out there. Uh, Marawar, interestingly enough, is probably where I would say I started my ministry. So it's the first place where I spoke. Um, it's the first place where I ran a youth group. I was involved in teaching Sunday school. Um, so this is kind of the beginning of my ministry. Not this building itself, because I was a brevo, so I was two paddocks away. Um, I haven't worked out the theological difference between the two yet, but we kept separate most of the time. Uh, but we used to have their kids for Sunday school and we'd meet once a month. So I'm here at Marawar and wanting to be a blessing to this community. And the reason I'm here is this is the last Sunday that this church, the Marawar Baptist Church, will be running. Uh, this is their big finale. And it's, um, it's on at 11 o'clock, so I wouldn't mind your prayers for it. But I'm here to bless in a way. And, and it's interesting because it, it matches where, where for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at what it means to be a blessing. So in our churches, things we do follow, bless and share. But it also ties in really well with Christ, calling and community, which is the three phrases we're going to be using this year. Um, bless kind of comes right in between the calling and community. So how do we bless others? Earlier we heard Annette reading out the passage from um, James chapter 2, uh, the brother of Christ writing, and, and someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. We're going to look at bless, and uh, I think as Reformed churches we know that we can't earn our way to salvation, but it is by the grace of God, by the sacrifice of Christ that we are saved. There's, there's no way around that one. It's, salvation is a free gift. So working out how to be saved has very little to do with us being a blessing to others, except that, um, James said, I will show you my faith by my deeds. It's my actions are the evidence that I have been saved by Christ. Being Christian is synonymous with blessing others. But why is that? Christianity, or perhaps Christendom, has some pretty dark patches in history. But if you want to see Christianity at its best, You'll find that those marginalised, the oppressed, the poor, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, they will be looked after in that society. Being a blessing is core to being Christian. And when you see Christianity at its best, you'll find that. There was some research that came out in 2018, which said that Christians were 16% more likely to volunteer and 22% more likely to donate to needy causes. And over the coming four weeks, we'll be teaching about blessing others. Why is it so pivotal to us as Christians? Just as a side note, you can find this in the sermon notes. Um, if you type in the church web address, w.citywidehobart.org.au slash bless, you'll actually find a few videos you can watch that are inspired um, at the bless for our church. Um, and at the very start of his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it clear that his followers are to be a blessing to the world. When he talks about us being salt and light, a city on a hill that can't be hidden. At Citywide, we want to support and encourage one another on the adventure of living our whole lives as a blessing for the world. And so we created this acronym, which is um, BLESS. So bless people, listen to the Holy Spirit. That's coming next week with Scott. Eat with people, uh, study Jesus' way, and then we are sent with a purpose. So why bless? Well, let's have a look at that. Why bless? We bless because God first loved us from 1 John 4:19, 19. 
And it's God's very moral viewpoint. It's what God cares about. He talks about it often in the Bible. Let's read a few passages. He cares about the fatherless, the widow, the foreigner, those less fortunate. In Psalm 68 verse 5, he says, Learn to do what is right. Promote justice. Give the oppressed reason to celebrate. Take up the cause of the orphan and defend the rights of the widow. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, 28 and 29, it says, At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns, may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in the, all the work of your hands. In James 1.27 it says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This next passage is an interesting one though. 1 Peter 3 verse 9 Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to, to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. Now the reason that sounds a bit interesting is um, it sounds like you're being a blessing so that you can receive a blessing. It's almost like a trade. I'll bless you and then hope that I get something back um, in return. Which is in contrast to quite a few bits of the Bible. Have a listen to this, Matthew 6 verse 1 to 4. Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honoured by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then the Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So it's interesting. Um, I don't think Peter here is saying, and I'm pretty certain, he's not saying set up a trade agreement if you bless someone, then they owe you. Um, if you do something for God, then he owes you. But it's more like this. In, in my 18 years of experience of doing ministry in the UK, my wife and I committed ourselves to bless a town in England. And we were running after school clubs to help, our, to help out busy parents and to integrate between generations, to live out our god, godly values with the kids. We were running youth drop-ins for kids on the street who were doing it pretty tough. Their, their house wasn't really a home. Um, we were running youth Bible studies, summer clubs, meals together with each other in our houses. And what we found is that in aiming to bless others, uh, we ourselves were blessed. Our children grew up in a beautiful, caring and integrated community. Two verses that were motivation for us in that time were in Matthew 16, 24, 26, Jesus gives his disciples a riddle. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then in Matthew, I'm quoting Matthew a lot today, Matthew 6 to 9, if you want to learn about blessing, go to Matthew 6 to 9 and have a go at that. Matthew 19:29 says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. So my experience of blessing others and then receiving blessing is more that the receiving blessing is a byproduct of giving the blessing. It's not the goal. And we need to keep ourselves in check. Am I blessing others so that I can be seen? Am I blessing others so that they can owe me back? 
am I blessing because I want to be profited by God? So things like this. We need to keep ourselves in check because what Jesus asks is that we bless full stop. No catch. That we bless those who are in need. Matthew says in 6.33, Seek first God's kingdom and then all of these things will be added to you. So, yeah, so with this bless, just heed the warning of keep yourself in check. I found Paul's uh, verses on when I want to do good, evil's there right with me. I found that to be very true. Even when I you know, want to do something great, there's always this little tension of wanting to be seen or noticed or appreciated. And I need to keep that in check because I want to bless full stop. Just to bless. Yeah. And then the byproduct has been that I have lived in blessing that was the fruit of that blessing, which is amazing. And an image that Anne shared with me this week was um, that if you release generously, you are in a posture of openness. And, in the, and that posture of openness opens your heart as well. Um, it protects you from your selfish ambition, from envy, from bitterness. But if you close up, if you grasp and hold, if you close your heart, it will become like a dark, dank cellar. It will become a place that is cold and clammy and isolated. Um, but a posture of giving brings you peace as you, as you share with others. I'd like to show you a bit through history, um, a few of the people who have been a real blessing. So let's do a bit of a case study. One is, well, let's start way back. There was a woman and her husband, they were living in Bethlehem. They had their two grown sons, probably young men now, and they were going through a severe famine at the time. They decided that it, they'd have a better life or chance if they moved away from their home country and became foreigners in a land called Moab. So they left Bethlehem, traveled to Moab, um, but not long after arriving there, this lady's husband died. Her sons ended up finding two wives, one each, and getting married. And they, but it wasn't long after that, and these two husbands also died. We don't know how they died. And so Naomi, this lady Naomi, she was left with the choice, what do I do? So she, after 10 years, decides to head back home. Now I want you to get the cultural picture of this. Here's an older widow, single lady, no children, no family. She's going back to the place where she grew up thinking that that's better for her, but there's just no social society, no system. I think she is fearing uh, that she pretty much has nothing, but she starts to head back. And anyway, halfway back, she says to her two daughters-in-law, you really shouldn't come with me. Now let's, let's hear it in um, her words. Uh, in Ruth chapter one, verse 14, at this they wept. So Naomi said, you shouldn't come with me. At this they wept aloud again, and Orpah, one of the daughters, kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and um, to her gods and go back with her. I'll just pause there for a sec. Ruth was young enough to be able to go back to her people and hopefully find another husband again. Being, having a husband in those times was pretty significant. Having children was very important to look after you in your elderly care. So the best chance Ruth had was to go back and start again. But Ruth said in verse 16, Don't urge me to leave you, to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. 
Where you die, I will die, and where you're buried, may the Lord deal with the same with me. Be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realised that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Now this next verse, verse 20, says a little bit of, of um, where Ruth's mind, where Naomi, the mother's mind was at. Naomi bumps into some of her old friends and they call out, oh, Naomi's back. Anyway, verse 20, it says, she says, don't call, don't call me Naomi. She told them, call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? And the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So can you imagine uh, Naomi coming back to this place? Destitute, lost everything, but Ruth committed to stay with her. Ruth's being a, a blessing and committing herself to Naomi. Now, it's not, not long after that, Ruth actually finds someone to care for her and eventually this person marries her. They have children and what I want you to picture is Naomi as a grandma with her little grandkids bouncing up and down on her knees. What a blessing Ruth has been to this old woman, giving her life for this, to, to be with Naomi. And Naomi doesn't know it yet, but one of those grandkids is going to be the, a part of the lineage of Christ, the saviour of the world. What a blessing that Naomi received from Ruth. Now the next one I'd like to talk to you about is a guy, uh, John. Now John grew up, he's, he was one of 19 children. I can't even fathom what that would be like. Uh, but times were tough back then. Only 10 of those children made it to adulthood. He had a beautiful caring mum who basically ran homeschool for her kids. She ran it like a classroom, completely regimented. Her mum used to spend one hour a week, one to one with each of her children, not to teach them, but to listen to them. She had no agenda in that hour. She would just sit, spend that one hour with that one child and listen to them. What a beautiful way to bring up her kids. Anyway, one of her kids, John, was a bright pin. He went off to university, uh, studied in Oxford. Uh, now, just as a clue, he spoke eight languages, um, four of them modern, four of them ancient. So he spoke English, French, German and Spanish, as well as Latin, Greek, Hebrew and Aramaic. Um, and these are the, some of the things that really stood out to John in his ministry. After he, did, he did a life full of ministry. He rode 250,000 miles on horseback. Now that's 10 times around the planet. And usually when he was riding on his horse, he would be, he would pop up a leg on his horse and he would read a book as he was riding and let the horse just take him. His job was to bless his nation, to help them find God. But at that time, times were pretty tough. Most of the churches were owned by the local lords. The clergy were chosen by those lords and it was a way of managing the people. And the church was actually for the Lord, his family and their attendants and, and others who were of high standing. There was a pew fee which poor people couldn't pay. So church and religion basically became um, out of reach of the poor people, became a middle class to upper class religion. But John, as he went around preaching around the country of England and Cornwall and Wales, he said there's no place for social pride in God's kingdom. God's grace has been imparted to all, rich or poor, educated or unlearned. The lowest and the worst have a claim to our courtesy. He rang very often with the words of Christ, whatever you do unto the least of your brethren, you do unto me. 
John would say, nobody is excluded from the love of God because we are all part of God's creation. And at a time when many poor in England struggled with life and for whom church was inaccessible, John shared that God's grace was for all and all were of value. This was revolutionary in his time. He would go out speaking in the open air. He was often excluded from church buildings because of his radical, evangelical, non-social class specific sort of ministry. But he would speak to thousands, tens of thousands, and they would commit to each other. They would read the Bible, they would pray together, and they would bless those who were in need. And so he set up this organization with these three layers that would its goal was to become spiritually closer to God and fervent, but also to bless those around. And by the, by the time of his death, there were 130,000 members, both in England and America, who were following his, his teachings. He was an absolute blessing. Wesley was deeply convicted that God is concerned for our earthly life as well as our heavenly one. And so Wesley, at the time, most doctors were out of reach of the poor. And also, most doctors were more conjurers than scientific medical practitioners. They had some pretty funny uh, ways of treating people. And so John actually took on many doctors and he said, you've not tested for the efficacy of your medication. He said, how can you administer this stuff if you don't even know it makes a difference? And then you pocket the money from it. So he actually wrote a bestseller book uh, about health treatments. Many of those treatments still stand today. Some of them are a bit funny. My favorite one, um, he, for, if you have an upset stomach, you hug a puppy next to your tummy and it makes it feel better. Now that probably works, but not scientifically. It's probably more emotional healing. But uh, many of his treatments are still used today. And so he, his goal was to help the poor and the needy to have better care medically. Now there's a saying that we've used a bit uh, that's attributed to John Wesley. It says, do all you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. That's a lot to take in, but he's basically just saying, just saying get out there and make a difference. Let your faith motivate you. And he also, one, one inspiring thing is uh, another way of blessing is through prayer. And he called prayer the grand means of drawing near to God. And he found believing persistent prayer to be the necessary first step to see God move. He modelled this conviction by devoting at least two hours a day to personal prayer. And he made permanent, um, fervent prayer a hallmark of the movement. And you can see here his prayer chair where he used to kneel. You'll notice the stand so he could also read and pray. Two hours a day. And you can see that chair in, in London. Now I want to show you this next person. This, this first picture here, you'll see this is where he grew up. He was to be the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury. He was pretty elite. Now his mum grew up in this place, which is Blenheim Palace. These guys were right at the top of society. Um, so this is where he used to go and spend his summer holidays. Anyway, Shaftesbury's childhood was an unhappy one. His parents were distant. And harsh and his Christian faith was actually nurtured under the influence of the family's housekeeper who read Bible verses to him and taught him prayers we see later through his life he ended up going off to college in Oxford um, at the age of seven he was in boarding school went to college in Oxford but we see letters between him and his housekeeper that was a precious relationship one that really helped him find uh, faith in Christ 
Shaftesbury became a, an MP at the age of 25 in his local area. And uh, his first bill was actually to care for mentally ill people. Um, at the time, mentally ill people were shut up away in a lunatic asylum, um, in filthy, degrading conditions. And Shaftesbury visited one in London and found the occupants all but naked, badly fed, spending lo long periods in chains. So he became chairman of the Lunacy Commissioners and he, he continued to press for reform. By 1845, 15 years later, he'd pushed through the legislation which treated the mentally ill as people needing care rather than social outcasts. He also championed reforms in factories and mines. In factories, he brought in legislation. It took many years, a couple of decades, to say that children um, and women, uh, so children under 10 and women, were no longer allowed to work more than 10 hours a day. In those days, if you were destitute and you had no other option, you would go and work in the workhouses. A workhouse is basically where you sold yourself to the owner. He fed you and clothed you, kind of. And in return, he owned you, your body and your labor. So these, these people were working extremely long hours. Ages later, there were still reports of four-year-olds putting in 16-hour days in the textile factories. It took him 17 years to bring in legislation to change it but there was still no policing and regula regulation. So he then continued to push for, for that to, to be, uh, for legislation to actually be enforced. And uh, the Ten Hours Act finally became law in 1847. Uh, Shaftesbury had quicker success in bringing reform to the mines. In 1840, he helped set up the Children's Employment Commission its first report on mines and collieries shocked society and most people were unaware that women and children even worked underground. But he actually found 60 year old kids who were working underground all day, every day. The only daylight they saw all week was two hours on a Sunday afternoon. His report told how they just had to pump the oxygen bellows to keep the miners alive. That was their job all day, every day. Often sitting naked in these dark tunnels in the black, in the dark. For nearly 40 years, Shaftesbury chaired the Ragged School Union, which provided free education for working class and destitute children. Over his time in post, it's estimated that the union helped about 300,000 children. I love Shaftesbury and Wesley and what they did. But the thing I want you to notice as well is the blessing of this housekeeper who invested in the life of a young boy, taught him to pray, read him the scriptures, and from there helped him to find Christ. I want you to see the blessing that that woman was to him and then to society. I also want you to look at uh, John Wesley's mum and the amazing effort she put into raising her kids, the methodical way that faith was integrated into their learning. And then from there, the, her sons just really transforming the UK. The ways that we bless people we'll be talking about over the next four weeks. But it can be anything from the, the small things like caring for grandkids and investing in their faith journey. Because it can be things like um, meeting your neighbours, taking them a jar of jam. We don't have to just look at the big world changes, although that's important as well. And that's where we'll start talking about calling. What is it that God's called you to? How do you find God's calling for you? How do you listen to the Holy Spirit to work out what he wants of you? Our job is not to feather our own nests and to build up our suburban lives. So how are we supposed to live in this society but not be of it? How are we supposed to give of ourselves and bless those around us? 
I think the first place we'll be looking at it more, but one real place is to listen to the Holy Spirit, to see what touches your heart. What are you committed to? What is God showing you? And then what difference can you make? How can you be a blessing into that? How can you be a blessing to those you interact with? How do you pray for them? How do you have a list of people's names that you pray through every day, saying, I just want God bless that person, help them find you. So I want to leave you with this. In 1 John 4, verse 7 to 12, John says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed him love, his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we have love one for another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We love because God first loved us. So I wondered this week, as, we, as I finish up, can you think of ways in the short term that you can bless others? We'll talk more about the long-term stuff and there's time for that. How can you be a blessing to someone this week? Why don't you pray and say, God, give me someone who you want me to reach out to, who you want me to bless, someone that you want me to care for, and just to bless full stop.